0: 17 minutes it is before 8 p.m you're tuned in to metro fm talk here on the mighty metro we take a look at the world of money and uh, what's uh, moving the markets uh, on this uh, uh, wednesday and i'm joined on the line to uh, take a look at some of these issues by uh, an analyst at emergence investment managers Nulwantle, good evening to you and welcome
1: hi how are you i'm
0: good thanks how are you
1: i'm good thanks
0: I want us maybe to start off here with Joe Rogan. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know who Joe Rogan is, um, but maybe you can help me here. Yeah, and, I don't
1: uh, think I can help you. I don't know who you is is Maz no <laughs> Joe Rogan.
0: But what I found interesting was, uh, I guess, how he now is at the center of a very interesting pivot on the part of Spotify, and they're looking to become the next uh, Netflix here, uh, using the podcast channel. And I guess what what made the old model different was uh, how the uh, amount of money in every dollar or rand uh, that uh, they would receive, that they had to pay over to some of the owners of the music uh, in royalties and uh, uh, I guess uh, some of the payments that they're obligated to pay. Talk to me about why this is going to be different with the podcast space and why that might bring them much closer to the Netflix model.
1: Well, if you think in terms of um, music streaming services, there's nothing that really differentiates one from the other other than price. Because and maybe just the number of artists, but all your mainstream artists will appear on multiple music streaming services. So if you will listen to certain artists, and you've got an iPhone, you're gonna have iTunes, I mean, or the Apple Music and have all artists unique. And if you go to Spotify you'll have the same artists there. So there's nothing to really differentiate the service to be honest. It's not like um T V streaming and series streaming where you can have your own content that is exclusive to your to your um your your offering. So by bringing in someone who's going to be exclusive, that is their way of, you know, trying to capture people to join their streaming service. And then through that way, they'll probably just get the traffic as opposed to, you know, any any exclusive or well, any, you know, f- you know money from, you know, p- people streaming a service because it's free. But it's more about getting the traffic in there. And they found one artist or one, well, whatever he is, <laughs> who's, who's, who's got an attraction, who's got a crowd, who's got a following, who's got a following base, you know, got a customer base that they can leverage off of. And that's basically what they're doing. Mm, mm. And, uh, I,
0: I mean, I guess, you know, if um, you're working on a model where, uh, you're able to really, I guess, the more people you onboard onto the platform, to really have a massive upswing without a change in the cost that you're paying for that content. That uh, that looks like a much better cash-generative model than maybe what you would have had if you just solely focused on the music.
1: Yeah, so I think you know this, you know, it's good, but I think you know they did overpay. But I think mm. even you know when you are getting into the market and you try to get you know the big players, you you tend to overpay. Um, probably value is quite overstated. Um. And, you know, the thing is, you know, many people will already have many, you know, multiple streaming platforms, um, that have to offer some sort of incentive to get people on. But definitely, I mean, there's a, you know, there is like a, you know, a leverage, operational leverage by getting more people in because the costs are different. But if you obviously have to make investments as the platform gets more followers and users, we've seen that around the world with the different TV, um, streaming platforms where, you know, and, and as users come up, you're going to invest more into the service. So there'll be those, you know, one-off or more ongoing fixed costs that incur as you get more people on the platform. Mm. But numerically, you know, the numbers, you know, do lead to high gearing. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah, yeah. Let's shift our attention slightly here away from uh, the content businesses here and uh, take a look at uh, the, uh, I guess, um, auto, auto manufacturing, if I can put it that way. Uh, but also, I guess, some uh, manufacturing of components and supplies for the aviation sector. Now, Rolls Royce. Uh, these guys don't only make all of those luxury high-end cars, but they also make engines uh, for aeroplanes. And uh, it seems now on the back of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a tough times for the aviation sector with COVID-19, uh, that uh, they are one of the first casualties in line here because many of their clients would be some of the massive players, the likes of Boeing.
1: Yes. So, I mean, it is, you know, quite a significant contributor to the revenue. Um, the revenue they're getting from the manufacturing of engines to, to the planes. And, you know, they've, you know, taken the view that, you know, um, the aviation industry will only go back to normal in, you know, two to three years. So they're significantly downscaling their business um, to keep costs low um, for the interim while, you know, they see that, you know, the market and the demand for, for flying and travel is going to be quite muted. So I think, you know, if, you know, if they're correct in their views, it's the right, it's the right, 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 move to make. And I think it is going to be quite tough for the evasion industry. Um, we've seen many, many, um, you know, evasion airlines, you know, needing to be bailed out. Not, not only our own, but just globally, you know, our, our cases aren't unique. So they definitely are doing a, a good strategic move. Um, to just completely just lower the um, the cost base for an industry that's probably going to be under pressure for a while.
0: Mm, mm. Certainly tough going here uh, on the part of uh, Boeing, and uh, as the dominoes fall and scatter uh, from uh, the uh, I guess uh, the havoc that COVID nineteen has unleashed on many a sector, and we know it doesn't end with uh, Rolls Royce. I mean Rolls Royce would have their own uh, spillovers into uh, some of their own input sectors and uh, some of their own suppliers. And uh, this might make uh, for a very sad ending uh, for the British economy. And uh, let's maybe talk about that briefly. I mean, uh, we know that much of this, um, uh, the work in the aviation sector happens uh, in Derby in the UK. And uh, the UK certainly are not shy or short of any of its own news and uh, any of its own risk factors, Brexit. And uh, we also see, I guess, uh, the COVID response in that country as well. What is all of this going to mean for the British economy and in particular the real economy in that country?
1: I think it's nothing unique to any other country that's facing, you know, the current predicament that we're in. Mm. So, you know, they're not immune in any way. Um, you know, whether Brexit had happened or not, I don't think it would have made any difference, especially with, you know, restrictions around travel for all their EU, um, EU counterparts. So, you know, like all economies, they obviously already had a contraction. I think, I think 16% predicted um, so far, if I'm not mistaken. Um but already the signs of of a contraction are coming through. Um obviously many, many lives are lost. Um that's also very unfortunate. And you know, it's it's just the full Global effects that's having that's happening due
0: to COVID. Yeah, tough times, tough times indeed. No lines. I want us to pause here for a second and we're going to take a quick spot break. When we come back, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, uh, elephant and uh, other big five on uh, platinum coins. Uh, these seem to be selling out uh, in the U.S. and in Asia, and we're also going to take a look at the Land Bank, uh, who uh, before lawmakers earlier on today requested a 22 billion rand injection uh, from the state, and uh, this on the back of massive credit losses that uh, can be attributed to anything from foot and mouth disease right through to the drought. We'll continue with all of that on the other side of this brief break. Some interesting news also coming out of uh, ESCOM. Uh, Just uh, while we are in our business wrap, it came through just as we were about to go on air. Uh, ESCOM has now been compelled to shut down and repair uh, one of the uh, heavier polluters uh, in many of the uh, coal-fired power stations, and that's the Kendall unit. Now, we understand that this unit... Uh, provides about 10% of South Africa's electricity generation capacity and uh, its units, Unit 1 and Unit 5. Said to be closed here because uh, some of the things that they are emitting uh, are things that uh, I understand, and and I'm not a scientist here, but uh, have the capacity to really affect one's lungs and the respiratory organs. And uh, this is a major issue that uh, I guess one of the big polluters in the South African economy is going to have to grapple with because uh, it's uh, going to have to come in line with uh, some of its emissions obligations if uh, it is to continue to uh, uh, receive not only funding in the marketplace but also uh, if it's uh, continuing to be on the right the department of uh, forestry, uh, environment, and fisheries. Now, Nuluanje, uh, just uh, briefly, another story I want us to take a look at here is. Uh, Uh, Some of the stories coming out uh, um, not not of the land bank, we'll get to that in the next few minutes, but uh, these elephant platinum coins that uh, seem to be a hit in the U.S. and in Asia. And uh, this is an interesting one here, if uh, we especially think about the rally that uh, platinum group metals have uh, seen. And uh, we know South Africa is a major producer uh, of uh, platinum and uh, uh, some of its other uh, sister metals, the likes of palladium and rhodium. I mean, you know,
1: the The South African Reserve Bank has gotten, you know, a few things wrong, but this is one of those things they really, really got wrong. Um, you they know, got the PG, they got it wrong. Okay, and I'll explain why. I mean, many years ago, the you know the miners, the PGM miners, were lobbying for um these um, platinum coins for a while. So for many, many years, um, you know they you know they lobbied to get them done, and the Reserve Bank you know shut them down every time. In fact, I think it was just around two years ago. Um, they were saying that you know the market is too small. Um, there's no sense in it, and that also it couldn't be used as a reserve a reserve, a reserve um, metal because it doesn't meet um, the IMF definition of reserve metals. So those are the reasons stated for that, and then they I mean, then they backtracked and they ended up producing them. Um, you know, after lots of engagement, after a long time. But, you know, here we are now, we're actually selling out because the demand is so high. Hmm. And obviously the market and demand has grown, um, which, you know, they obviously didn't see it coming. But if they'd done this, I mean, many, many years ago, um, would have created a much quicker rise in the demand of of the industry of the platinum coins.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I I mean, do you think that opportunity is lost uh, or or is there still an opportunity to at least salvage some of that up soon?
1: So there's actually very much the opportunity is because yeah there's definitely still a very big opportunity especially now as you know the platinum is switched out of you know most production um, and one of the problems is that you know that the they, the the PGM miners are having is that in order to produce, produce palladium you need to you know produce platinum first yes, yes. so it'll happen obviously to have surplus of platinum um, and you know and then just palladium as a byproduct. So this becomes a way to make use of that excess, excess palladium, I mean, titanium, Um And, you know, if the demand is as it is now, um, definitely it's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, just
0: uh, It involves a very interesting, um, you know, entity, uh, not too far from where we're broadcasting from, and that's Rand Refinery. Now, I must say, I mean, historically I've known them as a refiner of gold products and gold jewelry and the like and uh, now uh, making this foray into platinum. I mean, an interesting tie-up that they have here with the South African Reserve Bank uh, in this initiative. And uh, I guess when the lockdown uh, comes down, that might give them an opportunity to mint a bit more of these coins.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you must meet the demand where it's at. The rally's been there. And, you know, it'll probably turn around again. It's very cyclical in nature. But, you know, as long as we are there creating the market and we are the dominant leaders in the market, and it's just... You know, keep up with the competitive advantages that we have in the in the, in the platinum gold and um, platinum coin industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's shift our attention now to the uh, Land Bank and uh, quite an interesting set of developments here. Because uh, just for some of our listeners and uh, all who might not have the context, uh, a few weeks ago uh, we reported on something uh, that had come through in a sense announcement of uh, a potential default event on the part of the Land Bank. Let's maybe I guess trace uh, what happened uh, in Parliament earlier on today from that particular. Uh, a default event and uh, what has unfolded since?
1: Yes, so um, you know, Land Bank defaulted, uh, uh, if, you know, on their on their debt uh, to you know the market listed debt that they had a couple of weeks ago, mm. and the reason behind that is because they'd stopped becoming profitable. Um, they you know provide financing to commercial and upcoming emerging farmers, so they kind of a niche lender to that space. Um, And then they're a development, development bank. So they have kind of a mandate to help develop the, the agricultural economy. Um, and when, when, you know, farmers came under pressure, for example, the drought, you know, um, they just, they mostly get money from lending out loans and those loans then became bad loans and they became unprofitable. And what they require now is, you know, additional. I think it's about three billion they mm-hmm. require just to get them out of the. You know, they've they've defaulted on many of their, their of their loans, and they require some liquidity facilities and and some few billions to be bailed out by by um, treasury. So and they're quite important, and so they're going to need you know some help from treasury to to, to survive at this point. Mm, mm. And uh, I mean, just
0: just when we look at uh, what would have driven this uh, decline in profitability, uh, let's maybe talk about that uh, because uh, you know in the previous year, I mean, uh, this is a company that had uh, you know uh, over 150 uh, a million rand worth in profit, and then you know you turn 360 and you find yourself in negative territory uh, the following year. What happened in the last 12 months? Uh, that would have led uh, to, I guess, this uh, unraveling of events that led to the default and then early on uh, today, I guess, uh, them extending the begging bowl and saying we're looking for 22 billion rand in the interim.
1: So it is mainly because obviously the farmers defaulting and aren't able to meet up their loan repayments. So, you know, they face the pressure. Um, you know, a lot of their, the farmers at their service are smaller emerging farmers as opposed to those big big scale commercial farmers. So it's more of the emerging farmer client base, which came under severe pressure over the last, you know, over 18 months and even before that already when the drought was happening. So, you know, the good thing I can say about this is that this was one of our state-owned entities that actually has been profitable. So they have debt that's in the publicly listed market, which means that they were obviously, you know, you know, met certain requirements, and you know, they they got good debt sitting out there. And, and every, you know, many debt investors I've talked to, you know, this was followed, you know, investments that never failed them. So it really is just one of those, you know, economic hardships um, got in the way of land bank. And it has not much to do, it hasn't anything to do with anything other than the fact that, you know, the clients were under pressure.
0: Mm, what's the way out here? I mean, uh, if, if you paint just a, a a brief scenario for us uh, for a second. What, what, what's the way out? Um, is there a prospect? I mean, they've already told us that they're speaking to some of the creditors. Is there mm-hmm. a prospect maybe of getting, uh, I guess, more breathing room here by way of uh, an extension of uh, guarantees? I think their guarantees are around nine billion rand or so uh, already with the government uh, and um, very, very little exposure to that. But uh, is it about dipping into those guarantees or even extending them?
1: So I think if you have an SOV such as AXA and Land Bank, these are two institutions that have been really well run. Um, they've you know been able to generate profits and they were, you know, even in the debt markets they've been doing well. Mm. So that tells me that the business models are sustainable um, over the long term and that they're serving the function that they're supposed to serve. It's very different to an SOE which has been draining resources for a very long time. So I think, you know, helping this out, helping the the, the land bank out is, is, is what Ha- should happen. Obviously, we're constrained in terms of funds. So, how is the problem? But at least we know now. At least we can identify specifically what is the problem with Land Bank. You know, um is there mandate in terms of being a development bank a problem? I don't think so. You know, unless you know the profits don't say that. You know, mm. up until last year. So, I'm I'm comfortable with the fact that you know their mandate shouldn't be changed. Just maybe it's around getting a restructure which is, you know, works out better, maybe lower cost funding, whatever it is, just to get them out of this, because I do think that it's just a short term hardship.
0: Yeah, certainly uh, some tough times at uh, the uh, land bank, and uh, probably not in the kind of shape we want it to be in, if you think about how ambitious. Uh, South Africa's uh, proposed land reform program is. But mm-hmm. uh, Nolwanza, we'll have to leave it there. And uh, in the next few minutes or so, we're going to be catching up uh, with uh, the chairperson of the Standing Committee on uh, Appropriations. And that is Wabu Sheng who was chairing the session earlier on this morning. And he's going to give us some of his recollections and reflections. Nolwanza, thank you very much for your
1: time. My pleasure.
0: That there was any Mtombini who is joining us from Mergent's Investment Managers, uh, taking stock of some of the big stories in the world of business. We continue with our business wrap on the other side of this brief break, and we're going to be joined by the chairperson of the uh, Standing Committee on Appropriations in Parliament. And uh, they uh, hosted uh, the Land Bank earlier on today and uh, uh, had some very, very interesting discussions about uh, the future of the bank and, of course, the role that it's going to play in the ambitious designs around land reform.